Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Hey, Kara. Welcome back to our Sausage Design Show. How are you? I'm doing well. How was your birthday? My birthday <laughs> Another year around the sun has come Today, and gone. I, my boys, it's their birthday and their first day of school. So their birthday always eclipses mine. So three 15-year-olds, triplet boys will always eclipse their father if their birthday is two days later. And then my wife's birthday is later this month. So we just call it the Lynn Family Birthday Month. Which means basically every interview we get to celebrate some birthday for some member of your family. That's right. And hearing me complain about eating too much cake. We'll do this again in April when myself, my brother, and my dad all have birthdays. Right on. Well, we have our guest with us online already, so why don't we say hello? Hello, Alex. Hello, Chris. Hello, Cara. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. And we also have Caroline, our producer, online with us for the first time as well. So, hey, Caroline. Hey, everyone. How are y'all doing today? Good, good, good. Caroline, where actually are you? Because I know you've been traveling around the country a whole lot. Yes, so I'm actually back in Charlotte, North Carolina, where my mom lives, and I'm preparing to move to Atlanta this Saturday. So big move happening. I'm very excited about the start of graduate school in a few weeks. Congrats. That's really exciting. Yes, thank you. Starts soon, doesn't it? I just came out of a grad expo meeting for recruiting graduate students. So the reality of service has started. And Alice, you're, you're chair of your department, so you're service, service, service all the time, right? Nope, not anymore. So uh, what happened, I was running director of the School of Human Evolution and Social Change for some eight years. And then uh, about 18 months ago, I did a 180 and I've gone back to regular faculty of life. So I spent the last 18 months kind of rethinking about what I'm doing with work and not having to worry too much about everybody else in the universe other than myself, which has been absolutely delightful. Hmm. And this week I'm going back to regular teaching. So in fact, I am not an administrator right now, which is why I'm thrilled to have the time to do things like come and chat on podcasts which I did not have when I was a director. Why don't we start then with our first question that sort of like backs us into it. We want to know about your background and we want to know about the person as well as the research. So we're interested in your personal and your education background and how you got into anthropology. We want to inspire people out there. So tell us about yourself. Well, so I kind of backed into anthropology as a lot of people do. I grew up in New Zealand. You can probably tell by my somewhat strange mid-Pacific accent, but I grew up in New Zealand in the 1960s early 70s. And the first place I lived as a child was in South Auckland in the family housing for a fertilizer factory. And the fertilizer factory at the time had a lot of immigrants working in industry in New Zealand. And because of the particular form of immigration at the time, there was a lot of Pacific Islanders and a lot of Northern Europeans because of the timber industry. So I grew up in a street where I had two Samoan families on one side and a Norwegian family on the other. And that was kind of my early childhood was running up and down a street that had people from everywhere else in the world. It had always been kind of normal to me to be in these very cross-cutting types of environment early on. And I, I think that probably sealed in me a kind of interest in the fact that A, the world was small, but it was really, really interesting and there was always a lot to find out. And then, you know, I really got into anthropology proper quite by accident. I went off to college. I didn't really know what I was going to be doing. And luckily at that time, the New Zealand government funded you to be in college. So that was okay because it didn't freak your parents out the way it would now. And so... I finished my degree, sociology, anthropology, and geography. I think I just love the social sciences and went off to do 
to advertising school to, to learn how to work in advertising and marketing. And I went back to see some friends in the department one day and was walking down the corridor and some one of the faculty leapt out and said, if you enroll in the grad program right now, I'll give you a TA-ship because apparently oh. they need people to teach the class the following day. Wait, wait, wait. So just pause right there. So one, if the, if the government pays for your degree, your parents won't freak out if you study something that's actually of interest to you. And two, if you maintain connections with your department, mana will fall from heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and you're following your heart, aren't you? And I'm always a big believer that whatever anyone says, if you're following the things you're passionate about, and you do the other things, you know, like pay attention to the, the rules of how things work and turn up on time and work hard. It always works out in the end. Mm. I've, ne- I've never seen it not work out for people that do all those things. That's how I ended up in a graduate anthropology program quite by accident. But, you know, I was obviously going to see my friends because I was bored with the classes that I was meant to be at. So that just turned out really well. And I got, a, you know, as is always the case, a really great master's degree mentor who was a very interesting cross-cutting and you know intellectual that that worked on all sorts of different problems and really I think was very inspiring in the fact that the nice thing about anthropology is you don't have to be a thing you can be many many things through your career you can be working on many different problems at once and it's all cool right what did this mentor do I had a similar experience my undergraduate mentor had been a sailor an opera singer a police detective an army intelligence officer and he spoke like 12 languages. So I had a very similar experience. And he cursed me out in Mohawk regularly, which I thought was cool. <laughs> yeah, so for me, it was a good start. He's now a dairy farmer. Nice. That's how he ended his career. So, but I love that whole attitude that it was about the pursuit of knowledge, that it was about doing things in interesting and important ways, but it didn't really matter what you were studying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really stuck with me throughout my career is that it's about the journey more than anything else. It's about continuing to learn, continuing to grow, to continuing to connect and, and staying as excited as you can about what you do, which That's is why thing biology is great because right. it's a very dynamic field. What was the person's name? I'm, I'm curious and I just like to give props to people who inspire others to go into the field. So his name was Doug Sutton. He was an archaeologist. So I've worked with mentors across all the different areas in anthropology over the years. You know, I've kind of defied labels. So, you know, my first mentor was my master's degree in archaeology prehistory. Then PhD was in bioanthro. I had an amazing mentor, a woman called Jane Underwood, who was a biocultural anthropologist, worked in Micronesia. I miss her every day. She was just a wonderful, wonderful, kind, generous mentor. And then my postdoc was as a demographic anthropologist. Then my first job was as a biological anthropologist. Then my second job was as an ecological anthropologist. And then this job was as a medical anthropologist is how I was hired. And that's also one of the fun things about human biology is that you don't have to settle on a label and stick with it in terms of how you sort of navigate your career. So, you know, I've done a lot of different sort of permutations of self as I've gone along. That has been really helpful, actually, for being able to stay connected to new things that come along, new opportunities and so on. So that's really what drew me into anthropology has kind of kept me there, is the fact that I get bored really easily. And anthropology has been a place, or human biology more particularly, a place where it's very hard to stay bored. I love and that. you are allowed to constantly, constantly reinvent what it is you're thinking, how you're doing it, who you're working with, and so on. That is something that when students come into my office and ask, you know, why in the world did you go into anthropology and become a professor, all this, that, and the other, and the flexibility to follow my interests and what I find fascinating and, and curious 
that is one of the greatest things. And I'm really glad you highlighted that, Alex, because that's a huge thing. And I don't think students, at least from the undergrad side, don't get the flexibility that we have and what we get to pursue. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I love to brag that we get to study anything that has to do with humans. Which... Or non-human primates. Well, <laughs> with humans, which if you're a sufficiently good BSer, is anything. It's very true. Yes, but I also points this out regularly that me and my friends think we know everything about everything because we're anthropologists. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you started this by saying you are no longer an administrator, but that's kind of not true since you are the new HBA president. Uh, oh, I am <laughs> appointed administrator within a university, but I am delighted that part of my transition out of formal admin has been to have the opportunity to step in and help with the HBA. It's been an absolute joy for me. So what do you see your role uh, as the new HBA president? Uh, what kind of are your plans and your thoughts and what, do you, what would you like to see happen? So to me, you know, I'm really lucky I came in at a, have come in um, to work with the HBA at a time when in fact, you know, there's a lot of issues large and small that had kind of been figured out and dealt with administratively. So it really is this very smooth and happy time for the organization. I think it's a great time to be very forward thinking and to have the time and space to really consider what we want to be. But in terms of my own views on this, there's a few things that make the HBA really special and that I'd really like to help leverage those in a very forward thinking way. So, you know, to me, and there's always been a lot of talk about the fact that the HBA is small, which I think is actually one of its greatest strengths. And it's not really to do this with size so much or numbers as so much as scale. So, you know, some of there's some real things about the scale of the organization. I was thinking about this the other day and, and looking at some of the other, you know, sort of sister organizations and, and related organizations that we have that are much, much larger have had enormous amount of issues with the culture of collegiality, I would call it, in one of the things about a small organization is actually there's a lot more, the norms for behavior are more policed isn't the right word, but I think there's, there's, there's a better expectation of good collegial behavior in a smaller organization. So I think the, you know, that has served us very well over the last several decades. But it's not just about scale and collegiality. It's also about the fact that you can get to know people, that you can identify good mentors. I feel that the junior people in this organization are really well cared for compared to most other places I've been. And that was the experience I had as a student and coming up through the ranks. So I think that that's a very important part of the mission is to do with figuring out the very best ways to serve our junior members. And I also think the thing that's really important about the HBA is also to do with this lack of having to have specific labels. So if you go a lot of other places, whether it's in biology or in anthropology, people are very concerned about what they are and what they do and boundary policing in various forms. And, you know, having run a very, very large program that included anthropology for many years in a transdisciplinary environment, I'm pretty convinced that those boundaries and labels of traditional anthropology in particular, we really have to be thinking beyond those a lot in order to be doing the sort of important science and important scholarship that we are well poised to do by dint of our interests and training and commitments and so on. But by some often getting caught up in these labels about what we are and what we do, we are unable to really pursue things with the level of commitment and intellectual focus that we should, particularly sort of problem-based issues. So 
one of the things I love about the HBA is in some ways what some other people might think of one of the things that it needs to address, and I don't really agree, is specifically what its focused mission is. In terms of identity, I think that the mission is to, to be an environment in which you can foster those sorts of really cross-cutting, non-labeled, in-between the you know, in between the margins, types of activities that people do in the organization between the natural and the social sciences. And to me, that's a very special thing about the HBA. So that's kind of where I'm coming from personally. But, you know, part of the job of the president is also to get a good feel for what people want out of the organization and make sure it's delivering. Let me, let me preface this by saying Andrea Wiley, who was a past president, gave us a very similar answer, right? And in talking to her personally as well, she said to me once, because I, I had at one point wondered if HBA was the right organization for me. And, and I've found it to be my home less because of the disciplinary stuff than because of the people. And she mm -hmm. said, the organization HBA is who the people are. And I said, well, I, I always wondered if some of the stuff that I do, some of the evolution stuff that I do, some of the more cultural stuff that I do fits here because it doesn't seem to be in the journal. She said, well, the journal's different than the organization. Like the organization is who is in the organization. And so anything they want to present on at a conference is fair game. And I wonder if that message actually gets out. What do you think? That's an interesting point. I think anyone that's been to the conference and been to the posters and talked to people is is definitely going to get that that message. Is it getting out further than that? I'm not sure. I think we do need to find ways to pull more people in to give them a taste of what we do and why it's different than some of the other conferences that they might attend. And we need to sort of work on what that incentive or that taste of it might be. We have been doing a lot of work in the HBA, thinking about how to engage more international members and what it's going to make to make, make it easier for them to participate. Because I think then you're going to get this greater diversity of ideas. We're going to get the opportunity, particularly for American-based researchers, to be connecting to larger teams of people out beyond our borders. And this is all going to be really, really good for our members, mm. as well as for the organization. Yeah, that was a big part of the business meeting this past year. I remember that well. It was a really good discussion, and lots of ideas were brought forward. So I hope to see that move ahead. I think you will. I think there's a lot of energy behind that right now. To re, sort of reinforce, and I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but since you are our interviewee, I will bring it up again. The size of the organization, I think for some who think it should be bigger, it's come, maybe coming from other meetings. And sometimes we go into workshops where there's just a few people. And so the, the one that sticks out to me is the workshop on writing that you and Ivy and Bill Leonard and... There was one other person running it in Knoxville. Uh, you you were one of the, the mentors that were there. And there were only four of us who attended, right? So it was four mentors. It was me, Elizabeth Rowe, Michaela Howells, and Hannah Wilson. And I remember that because one of the suggestions that came out of that was start a writing group. And so all four of us who were there turned right around and started a writing group. And um, Kara later joined that writing group. And in some ways, this podcast and the efforts that we do now, Michaela is the chair of the public relations committee, and we're doing the podcast as part of that. So even that small workshop has had exponential benefits for us in our careers down the road. So thank you. 
Yeah, and one of the things that as I get rolling in this new role, I'd like to work on a bit more, for, you know, personally, is that one of the things that I enjoyed most about being the director of the School of Human Evolution and Social Change all those years was I got the chance to not just hire, but also mentor in a very large set of young faculty, including quite a number of junior human biologists who were all now coming up and becoming full professors, associate professors, that's super, super exciting. But when I reflected on those eight years, I realized the single most satisfying thing that I got out of that role was helping these people meet their own goals and align with what the institutions required of them over a long period of time. And I realized, you know, HBA is another space where I think we could be doing more to help people not just get their PhDs, get jobs, but also be doing more active mentoring, helping people work through tenure which is a multi-year endeavor but I have some some ideas to talk with EC about about how to put in some structures in place so people can actually have external mentoring committees outside their institution that they can call on that are kind of like go-to people that are there to help them give them advice give them support answer quick questions we've done that system within the school here and it's been absolutely brilliant and helpful for people to know that they've got two or three people that they can go to that are absolutely there for them to give them the truth of the situation, however dreadful and unwanted, but to provide that sort of external check on the decisions they're making. There's really basic things, you know, that sometimes you can't get a good answer in your own department, like a book versus papers, right? This can be an incredibly important decision that it's very hard to get good guidance from people. You know, some people say, well, of course you have to have a book, but then the reality of it might be that you don't and it's better for your career. So it's these sort of questions that I think once you get on the tenure track, there's, you know, there's a lot of political issues and so on. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's something that maybe that HBA can really extend all the way up to full professor in terms of active mentoring of people. Yeah, I know that would be greatly appreciated. I think that's a huge role of these professional organizations. And as you said, they're not there to police some of these boundaries, but it's becoming increasingly apparent with the issues that are going on across disciplines, including our own, that professional organizations, people see professional organizations as having more responsibility than they've been exercising. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And they're wondering if, you know, a professional, you know, because sometimes universities do not step up the way that they need to. They might meet the legal requirements, but I can see why people believe, and rightly, that professional organizations are the ones that should set standards and hold them as well. Mm. Totally agree with that. Okay, well, speaking of then some of the things that some of these issues, stigma issues that stereotype people is sort of the overarching theme of a lot of the research that you've done. So what got you interested in or led you to research on stigma in general? And and specifically, you've had several publications now on fat stigma. So in particular, what led you to that research agenda? So I've been working on obesity on and off for a long time. And, you know, I started in the early 90s, I guess, when I was working with Steve McGarvey in Samoa. First got, he was the one who, another great mentor for you, Steve McGarvey, as my postdoctoral mentor, taught me all about big collaborative projects and why they're awesome and how you can actually do those on the ground, which is not an easy thing. So I went off to Samoa with him in 92, maybe. Anyway, I got kind of interested in obesity at the time, but then went off in another direction. But then when I first came to Arizona in about 13 years ago, I said, oh, I'll go down to the neighborhood down the road here and I'll do some community-based research, see what people are really interested in. And it just came up over and over again. People wanted to do stuff on obesity. So that got me back into doing obesity research at that time. And then when I really sort of started getting into that and was thinking about obesity when sort of in a biocultural framework it keep coming up that really the dreadful costs of obesity to people particularly like extreme weights i'm not talking about 
you know, 20 pounds above what's considered ideal weight, but I'm talking about people that are, uh, you know, BMIs of 40 plus here, mm. is that, or even for kids particularly, is that the, the costs of obesity are not, re people aren't worried about cardiovascular disease 10 years from now. The real problem is, is that they can't get through the day without feeling terribly humiliated, rejected, unwanted, un that constant, constant messages that they don't fit in, that they're not right. The thing about weight stigma that's different, say, than racism is there's very little in-group protection in the sense that you go home and the people who often give you the most grief are your family. Mm -hmm. So people really don't have like a lot of safe spaces to go to. So, and then even if you look in activist communities, often if people lose weight, they distance themselves from the activist community. So, the, so you've got these really interesting things going on where people again and again and again are reminded that they're not right, that they are not what you can't fit. Physically, you cannot fit in a, an airline seat. Right. That's a very tangible reminder that you're not really part of society. You're not really, it's not, you don't really matter or count. So if people get these messages over and over again, it erodes self-worth. When you get erosion of self-worth, then you get all sorts of physical and psychological sequelae of that that can be really profoundly undermined health. So really how I got to this was this thing. The ethnographer part of me, once I start talking to people, says cardiovascular disease is not what people care about. What people care about is feeling accepted and living in a world where they feel their extended basic dignity and basic empathy. And in the absence of that, it does terrible harm to people. We know this, you know, it's depression and stress. And worse than that, when you start looking at the actual obesity science, it does things like change appetite control and basic operational things like people don't want to put on a swimsuit and go to a uh, swimming pool and swim because the cost of people's stairs outweighs the benefits of getting the physical exercise. So I decided that this was a really good space to get into to really, I think, represent what people were telling me they were really worried about and try and figure out some of how that connected biologically. And then once I got into the stigma space and I was like, why aren't anthropologists talking about stigma at all and it turns out it's like sociologists talk about it all the time and the most cited ever still most cited sociologist and sociology publication of all time is Goffman stigma right so and then you think of anthropology hang on Goffman was an ethnographer and a really really good one and he studied presentation of self and all this other stuff why are anthropologists just not here with the sociologists and psychologists who are not configuring stigma in a way that's useful to us. It's too, a lot of the work is experimental. It's undergraduates in the lab being shown pictures of things. And to us, this doesn't make any sense in terms of trying to understand biocultural processes. So I got really interested in what's happening out in the world. So then what happened is we said, oh, well, if stigma is really hurting people here, it'd be really good to do a comparative study in places I'd worked before, like Samoa, to see, let's go some places where people don't have these hangups about bodies. And then maybe we can show that, you know, this is predicting depression and predicting these disordered eating. So one summer, we had a little bit of money and we just went out to a whole lot of places that we thought might be interesting. So we went to Argentina and Samoa and East Africa and the Caribbean and, and so on and just collected survey data and we got it all back and we looked at it and we're just like, what on earth is going on? This is about 2010. All of them, the stigma, the sort of the anti-fat stigma ratings were off the charts and they were not the highest in the US or England or New Zealand. They were highest in Samoa and Paraguay was the highest of all. So we were like, okay, something really interesting is going on here. And it's in rapid transition because I knew that that was not the case in Samoa, you know, like 10 years before. So that kind of got us off on that track. And then also more generally thinking about 
Why are people not talking about stigma? Even people that are doing research on discrimination said to me, why are you studying stigma? I was go, what? Because stigma to me is the really damaging part. Discrimination is an experience. You're discriminated against. Stigma is when your entire identity is devalued socially. That is a far more damaging thing than experiencing discrimination. You can have you can experience discrimination and you can still have high self-worth and figure out ways to cope with that. But the, the moment that you decide that you are not a valued human being, it's very hard to cope with anything. So I didn't really understand why people thought discrimination was an important thing to study, but stigma wasn't. When stigma is really about you failing to meet cultural norms and being punished for it in the most severe way. And also we know stigma has incredible power. You know, it can be leveraged for all sorts of things to keep people down and out en masse. There's a high intersection with poverty, which also makes it something that anthropologists really should be looking at in terms of how power and biology kind of connect. I want to interject really quickly, just so listeners who don't know the context of what you're saying can get a sense. So I was in uh, Samoa last summer. Steve McGarvey and Nikki Holly held a little mini conference to talk about the state of research on metabolic syndrome there. And the recent data has the top 10 most obese countries in the world. Nine of, nine of them are in the, the South Pacific, right? So, so there's a, a, a huge, there's a historic trend, but the Samoans are, are really sick of hearing it. So on the one hand, they say, we're sick of being this model of everything that's wrong. But on the other hand, as medical practitioners, we want to we want to live healthy lives and we do see things changing between western and american samoa some of the differences that used to be there are no longer there so that that was just to give a little bit of context but i wonder then it sounds like a lot of what you have found has run contrary to your expectations what what has been some of the counterintuitive findings that you've you've noted in, their, in this research? So one of the things, not necessarily counterintuitive, but something that I wish I knew more about that I think is a very curious and important idea is that it might be that a lot of the sort of biomedical addressing of obesity is actually driving the anti-fat thinking, which is then making it harder for people to lose weight and growing suffering around weight. So it's kind of like, I think we haven't even started to unravel the fact that a lot of what we're doing in public health campaigns is it could well be one of these major drivers. And we're trying to start to unravel that through ethnographic cases. I'm working on a project right now with uh, Jessica Harden, who works in Samoa, um, Cindy Sturzpreth, who works in Japan, Amber Widow, who works in Paraguay, and Sarah Trainer, who was working with me in Georgia, in rural Georgia near Atlanta, and trying to actually use really systematic ethnography to get down underneath what's really going on here, because I think this is a very worrying thought that we don't really have a lot of evidence for how to unravel that yet. And so whenever, whenever I'm in a situation like that, I'm like we need really good ethnography to begin to unravel that a little bit. We've got a book that we're trying to finish now that draws those four cases together and tries to sort of tease some of this stuff out. Some of the Samoans that I've, you know, like I was just in Seattle this summer and I, I was thinking about this when I was reading your piece, you know, it's one thing to be in Samoa and to think about what we know about the, the demographics there, but then so many of the Pacific Islanders are in New Zealand, they're in the United States. Fred Frost's crew from Utah were in Seattle. These are all tattoo artists. We were at a tattoo convention. And they were up joking about how their combined weight was going to break the stage, right? So there's this joking about 
and knowing Samoans are big and joking about their size in a way that didn't sound stigmatized, right? Didn't sound the way Americans often will portray these things. So I was, I was just wondering, it sounds like from your research, not only do we not understand what's going on in these far-flung places, but with migration happening too, and people who are staying in touch with their communities, there's a blending of cultural attitudes going on that, that we have no, no idea uh, the impact of. So I think... You know, and this is the work we've done with Jessica Harden and Samoa, but I think what's going on in that case in some ways is that people have two models of what's acceptable. They're very contingent and contextual. So it's one thing when you go to granny's house and it's another when you go to college. But, well, it's not necessarily easier for people, even if they have places, because, and Becca's work is showing in Fiji, is that what happens then is people can't be too fat and they can't be too thin. So they're getting it on both sides because granny says, well, you're too skinny. You need to fatten up, have a brownie or whatever it is. And then, you know, you're going to college, you're seeing other people. So what we're seeing in a number of places is it's actually not about being big. It's about being just right. So people are also worried about the bottom end of the scale. And then now we're talking about a real global epidemic. So we've also been doing research in Korea and in Japan. And Korea and Japan are really, really interesting because obesity rates are extremely low. But once you start talking to people at the level of worry and concern, people are also very, very concerned all the time about how their bodies look and present. So it's like we think to say it's all about fat is really missing the point. It's we, we're living in a world where increasingly the norms of what are, is, are acceptable are closing in on both sides. Yeah. Men now are starting to, you're starting to see a lot of stuff with not being underweight is a bad thing. You know, you've got to beef up. This is kind of a new thing. So it's, a, it's this massive struggle all around and it's preoccupying an enormous amount of people's psychological bandwidth Everybody, I think, in the world today, almost in most, most places, wakes up and figures, am I, am I too big? Am I too small? Am I eating the right amount? Am I eating too much? Am I eating too little? Are my kids eating too much? Are they eating too little? I mean, this has become a major global preoccupation uh, to a point that it's really tra completely transcends local obesity rates. You know, if we're seeing the same sort of worry preoccupation in Japan and Korea, where the government is rolling out a lot of stuff, you know, saying people need to watch their weight all the time as well. So there's a sort of this dialogue going that's public, there's this dialogue that's going that's private, it's within families, it's in the media, and it's constant, you can't get away from it. A piece of really interesting research I did recently with Jonathan Maupin, who's one of my colleagues here in the School of Human Evolution so Social Change, and a medical anthropologist who's worked in the same village, Makatanango, in Guatemala for, for two decades or more. And he's been working with the school children there on some of this stuff. And the school children in Guatemala, right, where hunger is common, are getting teased for either being too big or too small at school. So, and then we did a sort of cross-national data in Guatemala and found the same thing, that women were displaying quite odds for depression equal to those of surviving domestic violence, civil war, extreme poverty and food insecurity, is that being teased about their weight was equal or greater odds of being depressed than any of those and women were being teased for being underweight or overweight so I, I think to just say this is about fat about obesity is really missing what's going on more broadly which is this has now become a major psychological preoccupation from everyone that I've come across in the last few years and I've worked in a lot of different places. I would actually like to go back to this whole public perception of obesity and I'm going to bring this unfortunately back to America. So, so much of what Americans see and perceive about obesity 
comes from shows like My 600 Pound Life and The Biggest Loser. And so those shows have, of course, come under fire for a number of things. But I also think to a certain extent, they can reveal how obesity has multiple drivers. When I talk about this in class, you know, students will just think about obesity and be like, why don't these people just stop eating? It's as easy as that, just stop eating. And then once you actually start discussing some of these issues, you realize that no, it is never that simple. And a, a recent study, a 2016 study came out on Biggest Loser contestants showing how after the show, their base metabolic rates just tanked from this extreme starvation and this extreme exercise. And so the show gave an unrealistic expectation that diet and exercise are going to cure all your ills. But then, you know, within six years, they gain almost all of the weight back. Anyway, all of that is a big setup to ask you what you think about these shows and how they actually are going to change public perception and shape public perception about obesity, how it's treated and how we stigmatize it. Yeah, so I mean, the shows promote sort of this enduring myth that weight loss is easy. And in fact, you know, for the last six years, I've had the privilege of co-directing the Mayo Clinic ASU Obesity Solutions Initiative, which is really trying to get into the space of how do we design interventions that work. Oh. But then there's also the question, you know, that I bring to the table as social sciences is should we even be doing these types of interventions at all, which I think is a really important question. Of all the conversations I've had in my recent career, with anybody. I got on the phone at one stage, he cold called me, one of the producers of The Biggest Loser, and it was probably the most depressing single conversation I've ever had in my entire life. So he called me in, in relation to my role in that Obesity Solutions Initiative to ask me what they could be doing on the show that would be new and interesting. And in the process of talking through with him sort of whole philosophy, I became quite deeply distressed about what they're trying to do they they knew before that study came out in 2016 they knew all of this all too well laid it out for me said there's almost no chance of any of these people maintaining their weight once they've lost it because the underlying issues are too big and they're not addressed and so it's been very uh one of the things i've been engaged in that has been a very rewarding experience was working with a young ethnographer called sarah trainer is a medical anthropologist a very talented ethnographer and we started working about five years ago at the mayo clinic in the bariatric program so mayo clinic has i I would say now, one of the best bariatric programs in the country. It's very well thought through. They have very, very professional staff. It's a very well-designed program based in science and, and, and a good deal of compassion too because compassion is often missing from a lot of this talk about how to deal with extreme weight. So we spent three years interviewing people that went through the bariatric program before, during, after, and while they lost weight and talking about their histories, talking about their experiences, talking about what happened in the clinic, what happened outside the clinic and we have a book that it's about to go into contract so I'm hoping it'll be out next year called Heavy Burdens in which we really talk about what these experiences are and work through a lot of these things what really matters to people as they're trying to lose weight so I'm pretty proud of that ethnography I think that it well reflects much better than a show than the, like the 600 pound losers was many many white and how it's so difficult to lose weight and the sort of things that people are having to deal with as they're trying to do it. And, and these are people that desperately want to lose weight. You know, they're not, you don't cut half your stomach out on a whim. It's not, you know, it's, it's a very serious surgery. You know, I started the project pretty cynical about weight loss surgery 
as an option for people and was thinking I was going to come into this with quite a, a critical lens. But after particularly Sarah taking extraordinary amount of time to work with people, talk to people, talk to clinicians, talk with, get to know patients, is that I'm pretty convinced that done well, it can be a good option for people. But because it does everything differently than 600 pound loser and, and in the Mayo program, at least the first thing they do and the first steps is all with the psychologist, not with the doc surgeon. So you're really starting from a very point of figuring out what people's goals are, what brought them there, what's going to help them, what's not going to help them, and sort of starting from this point of view of explaining to people how really, really, really hard it is to lose weight. As one of the, the Mayo doctors I worked a lot with said to me, we see these people as failed, you know, that they turn up here and they've failed. But think about this. These are people that have spent their entire lives trying to do this thing that is almost impossible, that is incredibly difficult and painful, like lose a lot of weight. And they're struggling to do it on their own often with very little support from anyone and even though they fail over and over again they get up and do it again and again and again isn't that the absolute definition of heroism is to just keep doing something that's really 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 hard until you conquer it i think we also have to rethink how we even think about people's efforts and weight loss and reframe it from the sort of the whole notion of failure that we really runs through it and we did this um, real sarah also worked with us on this really interesting online study where we thought well okay so this all sucks in the real world maybe in online communities people are getting the support they need and so we did this really interesting study with bloggers weight loss bloggers and we tracked them through time so it was like a longitudinal ethnographic study with bloggers and what we found was in fact the online environments too, not empowering. That whole weight loss journey is nothing but the sort of descent into a sense of failure. And that was a pretty depressing set of findings. Reinforces there's no safe spaces really with weight. And that's one of the reasons it's so health and psychologically damaging. So the public health efforts really need to work on destigmatizing this we need to point the other direction towards not the people who are working on the weight loss, but everyone around them who's putting them in these boxes and giving the, these ideals that are un, unrealistic and not validating those efforts. Instead of validating efforts, they're highlighting quote-unquote failures. But also putting the responsibility onto individuals to solve this problem. We know it's a structural problem. We know it's to do with sedentism and transport and work life and poverty and you know all these other factors that build it. It's if eating less and exercising more was a panacea, I mean, you talk to anyone anywhere in the world, they know how to lose weight. They'll tell you, exercise more, eat less. If it worked, we wouldn't have a problem. It's not lack of knowledge or lack of understanding of that formula. It's that the formula doesn't work. So I guess, because I'm clearly going to ask you to solve all the world's problems right here and right now, what would you suggest when it comes to combating public opinion when what they're faced with are these shows that show everything completely wrong and do not give the whole story? What can we do to, I guess, better get things like your book out to the general public when they're not generally going to be picking up that book when they, you know, pass by in Barnes and Noble or when they're browsing on Amazon. What can we do to start changing that perception? So for us, I mean, we think about this a lot because we've got to fit, you know, and having worked in this initiative called Obesity Solutions, which in itself, the name is kind of problematic. But it, part of this is this notion that I think as human biologists, we have to be constantly thinking about how our work can be applied, should be applied, is applied and so on. It's a very important part of what we do is that transformative angle. So what we've done in our case, and I don't think we could think is the best way forward, is that we've written another book that is also based on our blog, lazycrazydisgusting.com, 
in which that book is specifically for a global public health practitioner. So in that book, we lay out an argument in three cases. One is sanitation interventions, one is mental health, and one is obesity, of how the way that we conduct public health is fundamentally driving stigma all the time and we don't see it as completely invisible to us so it's, for us it's about making it visible and making it part of the conversation and we got and, and the book is under contract now at Johns Hopkins University Press and will be coming out soon I'm thrilled to say it's been a delight to work with them but you know one of the reviews that came back from someone that was a global health practitioner not in social scientist was I still don't get why stigma is important mm. chapter, but it's like stigma is not important it was like but that's the point is that public health practitioners don't understand that every day they go out and do their job, they're driving the beast forward. Um, and just by seeing it, if they could just see it, then I think that that would just awareness. So we're working right now just on basic awareness that this is an issue. And people that work in mental health know it, right? So that's why the mental health case is really, really interesting because any practitioner in mental health knows that stigma is a major detriment to treatment. It's also, interestingly, a major driver of mental health, which is a whole other argument that we make in the book. But basically, you know, it's a driver of depression first. But then once you want to get people into treatment for whatever it is, stigma is the barrier that you have to break through. You just reminded me. I, I sort of skipped over it, but I just want to read the quote that you had. And I was going to ask you to, to unpack it. You sort of have, but it's profound. You, you say that weight stigma, quote, may in fact act as a significant, if basically unrecognized driver of population weight gain in the obesity epidemic itself. You said it in a way that I think is generous, that it's a structural issue and that mental health experts know this, but the implication of that mental health issue is profound and it suggests we're doing absolutely everything wrong. We're making it worse. Yes? Yes. And it's this focus on the individual burden to fix the problem. So the notion that only way that we're going to deal with obesity is that each and every individual person goes out and does these things that we know are hard and is responsible for it and will be blamed if they don't do it. The entire system of how people think about how weight loss happens is based on blame of the individual, which is what drives stigma. So there's actually multiple different pathways that this can happen. So one is, you know, people that are psychologically stressed. The the hormone cascade is different, for example, in ways that make it harder to lose weight. People that are discriminated against, which people consistently are, you know, there's a huge wage gap around obesity and so on, end up with worse health care and fewer options, treatment options, you know, they maybe don't have even bariatric surgery is extremely expensive. So people can't really get bariatric surgery unless they're wealthy or they have good insurance, you know, but it also decreases educational opportunity and probably in, you know, over your lifetime, it's, it's eroding wealth or driving poverty. So, which and then in turn puts you, has you interact with far more obesogenic environments. And this is just in one domain. So we're almost out of time, but I want to really quickly transition to your other study because I see a connection, right? So the the community-led total sanitation programs that you looked at in your article where you were looking at hygiene stigma, the exact same thing is true, right? Where they're actually stigmatizing people to try to shame them into cleaning their their neighborhoods or their homes. And so when we talk about stigma and we talk about integrating shame into a public health program in any way, shape, or form. My guess is you're going to say that's going to actually make the problem worse. And that's what the data seem to suggest. Yes? Yeah. So I think we're finished writing this book now. Lazy, crazy, disgusting. That's the title. We're pretty of the opinion that 
because humans are so human, it's so easy to slide into this continuously. So essentially, the moment you start using shame as a tool for public health, you're going to have problems. And the unfortunate thing is, is one of the greatest successes in public health history was a shame-based intervention, and that was the anti-smoking, and it worked, right? And this is the problem, is that that is one of the reasons that this has become a completely acceptable and reasonable way to proceed in behavior change, and then the behavior change side of public health is because, you know, people look at smoking and they say, look what we did, and it was great, and it saved millions and millions of lives. The problem is now you go talk to anyone that gets lung cancer, whether they smoked or not, and they, for myself, I was diagnosed with breast cancer a few years ago, and it was a, it was a, you know, it's not good to be diagnosed with cancer, but breast cancer evokes a community and people all want to help and, you know, everyone sees you as a warrior and there's all these positive associations now, but, you know, lung cancer, people are kind of like, well, you know, they kind of did it to themselves and I'm not sure if I want to put on a t-shirt and run 10Ks for that. So we have really shaped a very different view towards different types of cancers based on how we apportion blame. There's certainly a lot of good saving lives rationale for using shame as an intervention, but there's a lot of uh, destroying human dignity arguments against it. So the, the question is, is can you do these things without shaming and blaming people? And we think the answer is yes, and that should be the, the standard. Okay, we're going to definitely have to have you back on. You were a liar when you said there are many people out there whose research is more interesting and who, who do more interesting things. That, we that's... could have kept going for three more hours, I think. So I did want to do a shout out. A lot of this research that I'm doing on hygiene and stigma, I do with Amber Wudich, who's here in the School of Human Evolution and Social Change. And sometimes I even forget to mention how much work I do with her because that we sort of two, often two sides of the same brain. And I keep saying we, we, we. Preface we by saying that probably means me and Amber Wudich. So just shout out for her and as an amazing colleague who put anything really interesting and important is probably something, an idea she came up with that I just followed along behind. And, and I know Amber, so tell her I said hi and next time you're on, we'd love both of you on together. Oh, that would be fun actually. How can people find, I mean, you've got, uh, sounds like 700 books and I know you're on Twitter and I was going to ask you about some your your Puerto Rico and Japan travels this summer. So we're going to have to have you back on, but how can people find out more and, and see some of the same things that we've seen? What's your handle? I haven't quite warmed Twitter probably the way I could. I kind of do it very sparingly. So it's Bruis underscore Alex, I believe, Amber Wudich. More interesting to follow on Twitter. She's a much better tweeter than I am. I see. I know. I just know how to say that tweeting as opposed to twittering so that's where i am i'm more engaged in, in the blog lazy crazy disgusting.com that's kind of where a lot of my social my sort of media emphasis is going but also get on the web and look up the school of human evolution and social change we are doing incredibly interesting things here and people i don't know what it is but maybe it's the name but we've got the largest anthropology program i've pretty sure we've got the largest human biology program all the time. I can't start counting heads. It's got, we've got amazing people here. We've got Katie Heim, Ben Trumbull, Joan Silk, Rob Boyd, Kim Hill, Dan Harushka, Amber Wood. I mean, it's just, the list goes on and on. You've got really awesome human biology types here. We've got Randy Nessie as well. So look us up on the web and find out what we're doing because you'll see we're doing a lot of problem-based research, really exciting stuff that's right at the intersection of sort of culture, biology, um, global health. Big powerhouse. It's very impressive. Indeed. It's one of the destinations for many of our master students or, or one of the places they'd like to go. I think I've sent some students that way as well. Well, thank you very much. We've been the Sausage of Science. I'm Chris. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y. And I'm Kara. You can find me at Kara Akabak. And I'm Caroline Owens. You can find me at Kara Owens on Twitter.
Caroline, did you have any last questions since we did we stepped all over you today? No, it's totally fine. Alex, I had a great time chatting with you. And actually, before Chris and Kara came on, we were talking a little bit of some of Alex's work in Puerto Rico, looking at how the hurricane is impacting water sharing and also having an effect on public health. And I think it's going to be really great to have you back on so we can chat a bit more about that. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. No, thank you. This was great. I love sausage and science. Keep it up. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.